0: Okay, well, let's jump into uh, to this morning. You doing well? Good. Fun to be together. Nice to be together. Um, it's, it was a darker day this morning when we woke up after the rain, but that's okay. It's normal. It's fall. It happens, right? It's cool. So um, now, summer is not officially over. Today's the last day. September 21st is the first day of fall. Wow. Or the last day of summer. Day of summer. What is it? Isn't it's officially the last day of summer or the first day of fall? I think we're split on this. I think, yeah, somebody Google it after the gathering. Um, so, um, so summer's ending. The, my, my family and I, uh, for the last several years, uh, probably six or seven maybe, I'm not sure how, how many years, we've been part of this local pool in our neighborhood called uh, Fairview Pool. And we live uh, not far from this actual location. And this area is called Fairview Village. And uh, officially, you know, or way back when it started. And the pool's called Fairview Pool. And this year we, we found out, this year we found out that... Uh, did I just die there? Okay, this year we found out that uh, it was an anniversary year for the pool. Apparently the pool's been open for 30 years. And so they had this ceremony. They had this, um, this special evening going on. And the founders of the pool were there. Five of the six people that started this pool happened to show up. They honored them. Uh, they created a plaque and things like that. They showed some pictures. And so that really got me thinking to ask questions like, how did this pool start? How do, how do these things go on? Because... Last summer, I was sitting with uh, a, swimming, a national swimming coach at a swimming meet who lives in Ontario, and he, he would bring his family to, to the West Island every summer because of the pool community. Like, he'd rent an apartment, join a local pool, and he told me that if he had $50 million, he would build 12 pools in the Waterloo-Guelph area of Ontario because it's the best thing for any community, any time. And so... I thought, oh, we got something pretty special here in the West Island going on if someone would want to throw $50 million down for 12 pools. So, and then, then this ceremony happens, and these five uh, people that are now older, uh, 60s or 70s, came, came to this ceremony. And so we started to find out, like, how did this pool start? And, and we found out that ordinary people in the neighborhood, just in some of these streets here, got together and thought, this community needs a pool. And they rallied people around it, they somehow raised money, they solicited the city, they figured out where it was going to happen, and these six people broke ground and got people around it to buy shares. In fact, some of my neighbors still own the original certificates of what it meant to be a shareholder of a local pool 25 or 30 years ago. And it got me thinking, like, what does it take for someone to consider the needs of everybody else and say, we're going we're to work towards this? We're going to make something happen here. We're going to put our own effort into it, and we want to make sure that many, many people are blessed by it. And so, now here's the cool thing. Not all these families are still living in Fairview Village, but their initiative has lasted over 30 years and will continue to last um, moving into the future. And and in their own small way, um, my family's benefited from this, but in their own small way, this is what it means to contribute to the common good of society when you when you look at your community when you look at your neighborhood and you say what can we do for the benefit of others and when your actions are not only for your good but for the good of others and so here's, we're in this series this, this month called You Are Here, what it means to, to value and understand the context that you're in, the city you're in, the community you're in. And we've walked through it the last couple of weeks, and if you're just joining us today, we'll try and get you up to speed. But if you've been with us, you kind of know where we're headed with this a little bit. And today, our, here's our thought for today. What does it mean to contribute to the common good of a city? Not just your good, not just the good of your family, not just the good of your life, Not just your progress, not just your benefit, but to seriously consider how your actions contribute to the good of other people around you and the city around you. And here's this big question. Is that something that the scriptures actually call us to do? Is it something that Christians should actually consider? We throw this phrase around at Westside every once in a while. We say, if the gospel is good for you, it must be good for your street. So here's the question. If the gospel is good for you, how is it good for your street? How is it good for your city? And so the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through this this letter. And we keep coming back to it every week and slowly unpack it a little bit. And it's found in Jeremiah 29. And it's a letter written by Jeremiah the prophet, speaking the words of the Lord to this group of, of Israelites, of Jews, that are exiled in this urban city in the ancient world called Babylon, led by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had captured them and brought them into captivity. And now the Jews are in this city called Babylon. And what we've discovered together over the last couple of weeks, are three things. First, God wants you here in this place where you are. And that's what he wanted for the Jews in that city. God wants you here for your good. We discovered that last week and what that might mean. And that builds the foundation for this next part that we just touched upon three weeks ago, that God wants you here for the good of others. We're going to see why this letter to this ancient group of people in this urban city why it made sense, and, and how it challenged them. And so we're going to read it again. So if you've got your Bibles, Jeremiah 29, verse 4. We're going to read part of this letter again. And then, like we did last week, just focus on one specific part. Here we go. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. And find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. So that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you, do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. And there's one verse I want us to focus on, and it's verse 7. And I'm going to read it one more time. And it's this. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Let's pray. Father, we wonder if you can just show us from your heart... Um, the depths of of this phrase in this letter to your people in that ancient time in this urban city called Babylon and help us to see what it means for us today in our urban city, Montreal. Um, So we just say, God, we're open. Please speak to us and intersect our hearts and lives. and We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't remember preaching on this verse. Um, We've used it on like flyers. When we did that, this 12 plus one prayer initiative back in 2012, that was the key verse. Um, I've never really preached on this chapter until this month. And in some ways, though, this verse has really shaped a lot of how Westside functions, uh, how we serve our city, how we view our boroughs, how we, 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 we want to encourage each other to pray for the communities that we live in, how we commission each other to serve in neighborhoods, how we encourage our community groups to not just think of their spiritual growth and their own relationships, but to think outwards in what it means to be on mission together as a community group for their friends and neighbors and in, their, in the, the communities they are. And so, as we jump into this, just consider this for a moment, what this phrase would have meant to the Jews. Again, if you're just tracking with us today, the Jews were in exile. They were in captivity. They were in a town called Babylon, a cosmopolitan city in uh, roughly 600 B.C. They're in a foreign land, and they hear God's voice through Jeremiah appeal to them, make this your place, make this your home, build your roots there, build your life there. Now, I bet you they could have swallowed the first two things we discovered in the last couple of weeks. God wants you here. Maybe they, they slowly swallowed that. Okay, Lord, maybe you want me here for a reason. Sometimes there's learning in pain. Sometimes there's learning in places we don't want to be in. Okay, God, you want me here. But then we discovered that God wants them there for their good. And maybe they could swallow that because there's, we can find good in many things, even the bad things. But here's this last one, verse 7, and I think it pushes them to the limits of how they think about God or maybe how they're reacting to God and pushes them to another level. And it's this, God wants you here for the good of others. And the others are Babylonians. It's a city and a region that doesn't worship their God. It's neighbors that don't necessarily live the way they live or believe in the things they believe in. And and, and no matter what they try and do, it's very possible that they're thinking, well, these people might lead my kids astray and maybe turn them into something that we never envisioned them to be. And yet here's God telling them, contribute to the common good of this city. So think about verse 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of this city. Imagine what that felt like to them at that moment. The words peace and prosperity sum up the Hebrew word used here, which is the word shalom. Shalom has rich history with Israel. Shalom is, is what is God's desire for his people and God's desire for all of creation. Shalom was, was the kind of life, the kind of full life that, that God wanted for them. It was the purpose that the law and the prophets had to shape Israel so they would become a light to the nations so the world would experience the kind of joy and peace and, and, and wholeness that God had in store for them. And it was, shalom meant peace. But it wasn't just peace like, you know, Rob's peaceful. He's nice to me. He never gets mad at me. It's not just like that kind of peace. You know, it's not like, well, me and Shannon got into a little argument, but we were peaceful it was cool. No, it was, it was bigger than just that kind of peace. It was a holistic life of peace. It meant well-being. It meant completeness. It meant prosperity. It, it's the word that another version of the Bible uses, welfare. The welfare of a society. And so think about this. God is saying, seek the welfare of that city. The common good of that city. Desire what's best in every dimension for those people and those systems and that society. God was asking them this. This is what God was asking them. Make the concerns of that city your concerns. Feel the needs of that city. What are they concerned about? What are they hurting with? What are their needs? Make the concerns of the city your own concerns. And God doesn't just bring this about. He uses this word as he starts this phrase that, is, that just packs a punch. Because if he didn't use the first word, you could almost get around with some loopholes. But, then he, he, but he uses that word. He says, seek the welfare of the city. That's not like, let's hope for it. Let's hang around the kitchen table and dream about it. Let's talk about it. It doesn't mean, just go to the voting booth and vote for it. Like, maybe those are parts of what that means. But it's much more than that. It's pursue it. Work for it. Contribute towards it. What God was telling the Jews in that urban city Babylon was actively work for the welfare of Babylon and its people and the people around you. I mean, that's probably like, wow, the Jews are thinking like, I got the first part. Okay, we're here. You, you, You want us here. I got the second part. You're going to do something good in us while we're here. But this third part, like, you want us to actively work towards their benefit. And, and let, me, let me paint a picture of what, of what the Jews might have heard when they heard the word Shalom. Isaiah chapter 65 verse 17 is probably one of the fullest visions of Shalom in the Scriptures and it's this prophetic uh, promise of what new creation will look like. Almost like if God were to build a city, this is what it might look like. And so, read, let's read Just We're just going to read this. We're not going like to unpack it in any way. But Here's, here's chapter 65, verse 17 of Isaiah. And just think about this. If God were to build a city, what might it look like? Let's just listen to these words. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will, be rem- will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem, take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. There never again will be there in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought of a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will the days of my people be. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, and they and their descendants with them. And before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. What an amazing vision. If God were to build a city, what would it look like? If God's fullest intention for our lives and for our communities would happen, what would it look like? Now, of course, this fullness of this might only happen in the new creation or will only happen in the new creation. But parts of it, we're called to be a part of here and show glimpses of it here. So what are some of the themes that come out of Isaiah 65? Safety, health, Prosperity, justice, enjoyable and productive work, peace. Think of the things that are described in that. And so there's this picture of the common good. That is shalom in a city. When the Jews would have heard, seek the welfare of that city or seek the shalom of that city, they would have been thinking of what shalom meant and shalom would have looked something like that. It was welfare. It was how do we, how do we contribute to the flourishing of this place? That's how the Jews would have understood welfare. Now, before we, we start applying that to our lives for Montreal, just pause for a second because God says something else in this verse. And, and, and it does something for the Jews that, that really holds them in check. Because there's, there's a temptation to divide the social and the spiritual. There's this temptation to say, oh, this is like just good work stuff and, and you know, compassionate stuff. And we're going we're gonna to do something good in our city. And, but this is not spiritual. But then look, look what God says. The last line of that verse makes this command different from your regular do-good mentality. It brings the social and the spiritual together. And God says to them, pray for that city. Pray for that city. I mean, this must have hit the Jews hard. Because they were never taught to pray for another city. They were always taught to pray for Jerusalem. They were never taught to pray for necessarily other people. They were praying to their God for their own people. But now for Babylon, like you, God, you want to pray for Babylon? You want to pray for this city that is so different, like is raising people so different than me than us? You want, to, you want us to pray for this, for these people? This command was so unique in ancient literature that a people would pray for their pagan captors. So, so unique. What would it feel like to start praying for a place you didn't want to be in? For rulers you didn't fully agree with? For a government that didn't always do the things that you thought were right? For people in your neighborhood that you know you disagree with and you don't believe in the same things? It's interesting because the Jews kept this practice up. It was in Babylon in those 70 years that, that, the, that the concept of the synagogue was created. They had to figure out how to be God's people in a different land and the synagogue was created and they started gathering as his people. And as the Jews were dispersed over the centuries in other different parts of the world, they kept this practice up. They would get together and part of what they did was pray for the rulers of the nation they were in. Pray for the nation that they were found in. So what happens when you start praying for someone you consider different than you? Or worse, an enemy? Or worse, your captor? What happens? I think your heart starts getting softer. I think you probably wrestle with it a little bit. I think you start to understand that the evil in their hearts is often not that much different than the evil in your heart or the sin. Sometimes you feel the pain, of the people that you're now with. Your fear and anger maybe begins to wear off. The fear of what it means to be in a place of where people don't agree with you, the anger of things that you don't like. I think ultimately you begin to love that place like your own. Now maybe you wouldn't choose it on the top ten places of the world to live, I mean the Jews wouldn't have done that for Babylon, although some of you guys love Montreal and would put it on the top ten, I would. But there's some things about our city that we don't necessarily all like. But if the Jews thought for a moment that their contribution to the city was disconnected from their faith, they were wrong. God brought the two together right in that moment, the social and the spiritual. Seek the the welf, welfare of that city and pray for it. it sounds like Jesus, love God, love people. He didn't separate it. It was the same thing. The spiritual and the social came together. Love God, love people. Peter tells a group of Christians in the, in the early church, as he writes to them, it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he says, live such amazing lives. Live such good lives among the pagans in your world. Among the culture, among the nation. The social and the spiritual coming together. See, the spirituality of the scriptures is not just about worship that, is like, that goes up. and We feel that. As we worship today, I bet you that we felt that our worship went up. Because that's where we generally feel God's direction, even though God is everywhere. But we had this sense of upwards worship. But what God is teaching the Jews here is that our worship is not just upwards. Our worship is outwards. That social and spiritual come together when we live a life of God's kingdom. And that contributing to the common good of our city is spiritual because God actually commands it, talks about it. So to act and to pray for the welfare of our city. Both are part of their purpose. And you know, the early church lived this out. The early church was known in the first few centuries. Just read some of the historical studies, and we've listed them here before, where, where the church was known to be the most hospitable group in the regions. Where the church was known to, to spend time with lepers, just like many people are spending time with, with people right now that, are, that, are, that have Ebola. And, and they know that there's a risk of getting infected. Christians in the first century nursed the lepers and spent time with them. And many times they discovered, I've just become like them. I have leprosy too. That was the love and grace and, and the social and spiritual coming together in the early church. They were known as people who took care of those who were struggling in famine, who, were, who didn't have any food, who were often ostracized in culture. And they, they lived that out. Later on in the 4th century, one of the early church fathers, his name is John Chrysostom. I love what he says. Read this with me. He says this in the 4th century. He says, this is the rule of most perfect Christianity. Its most exact definition, its highest point, namely the seeking of the common good. For nothing can so make a person an imitator of Christ as caring for his neighbors. So this is not like... This is a tradition within the church for centuries. And we can look back to Jesus that says, love your neighbor as yourself. We can look back to Peter who says, live such good lives in your culture. We can look back to the fourth century. John Chrysostom who says this in the early church lives this out. We can look back to Jeremiah and this letter to urban exiles seek the welfare of the city, and pray for it. But I, you know, here's the hard part, and I'm t- I'll be honest with you, I just wrestle with like, how do we apply that? <laughs> how, do we, how do we live that out? And I wrestled with how to, like wh- what are some things we can do to live this out? In some ways, I think our church community has already been in motion towards that. And that's why I said that we haven't, necessarily preached on this passage but in some ways we've been letting it filter into how we do things in our church but how how, how does what does it mean for you and me to work for the common good what does that what does that mean and it's tough because i'm gonna be honest with you i was thinking man i'm probably gonna be so vague this morning and what that means <laughs> because it's such a big it's such a big idea. First of all, the idea of the common good, let, let's talk about the scope of it. The scope of it is this. One of the phrases that I think, I think maybe was a quote from Aristotle was this, that common good is most good for all people. There's a difference between the most good for all people and the most good for most people. See, when, when government or politicians or businesses say, uh, what's in the public interest? They're saying, what, what's the most good we can do for the most people? But that's not all people. Common good is the other side. What's the most good we can do for all people. That, and that means that sometimes when you're on this side, the most good for most people, you're like, there's going to be a calculated loss here. <laughs> some, people are, some people are going to get hurt in the process. Some people won't get the benefit. This is going to be a calculated risk. Some of these people might die in the process. It's the most good for most people. Well, that's the public interest. But when you go to the most good for all people, then you start thinking sacrificially. You're saying, wait a second, what can we do? What can I do? that is not just good for some people, but good for all people. And that starts to really bring up questions in our lives, and our hearts. What does it mean as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, to contribute to the common good in our society? So the scope is all people. How many of you guys know Richard Dawkins? He's a well-known atheist, and and, um, I think his book was called The God Delusion. And I was amazed. I was reading. He tweeted a couple of weeks ago um, about a situation of, a, of a, a, someone who had a baby that was Down syndrome, and they chose to keep the baby. And he tweeted about that, and, he, and his tweet went along the lines of, the best thing to do would be, would be to abort that baby because you're saving two things. You're saving the difficult life of that child and the difficult life of that parent. And then, I mean, the whole Twitter world just erupted and said, You're a monster, you're crazy, what are you doing? And then he, then, so you think he'd clear it up, and he tried to clear it up, and so he blogged about it, and he said, Well, he said, Well, let's just kind of like go to the logical conclusion here. This child's going to grow up and they're not going to have full capacities and they're not going to have the best life and their parents are going to have to de- you know, designate a lot of their time and resources and money to this child and they're not going to have a good life. And then he states in this blog, and, and, and personally I think I, if that's what I believed, I would never say it. And, and, as, and often atheists, often atheists will, will try and say, look, morality, like I stay away from what I think morality is. And, and here he says he stated, he says, my morality is the pursuit of happiness. Like, happiness is, is my morality. How do we help people be the most happy in life? And so, see, that ver- that's the slippery slope of the most good for most people. How, how can we be the most happiest? And so, you know, you can read the context of what he said, and I tried to read through it, but that just jumped out at me. I thought, the ultimate pursuit of my happiness is not necessarily the good of others. So as believers, we got here. this is the beauty of Christianity. This is the beauty of, of, of Jesus. This is the beauty of the, the story of the scriptures that leads and nat- nurtures a people in our world that would think for others. And not just their own happiness. It's not that happiness is bad. But it's sometimes happiness becomes the God. And then others get hurt in the waves behind it. And so when we think about the scope, it's, it's holistic. God cares about all these domains in life, about health and, and safety and business and food security and, and education and arts and creativity and beauty. It's, it's all part of what it means to what shalom means. But of course, we can't do all those things in one lifetime, right? But we can start small. So we can ask, well, what am I doing on my street for the common good? What am I doing in my family for the common good? What am I doing in my neighborhood for the common good? Am I keeping my street clean? That doesn't mean that you got to be the perfect... I'm really not great at this, at making sure there's no dirt in front of my curb. But I'm, I don't just mean that. I mean, I might, am I looking after my neighborhood? Am I looking over my neighbor's house when they're not away? Do I report problems when they don't affect me, but they might affect others? Am I aware of the domestic struggle four houses down from me? Am am I considering even just the smallest scope, which is my street? And then when I go beyond my street, am I considering the, the food security in the West Island or your borough? Do people have food at a decent cost so they could be fed? Does my local food bank have enough to help others? Are there kids in our local school system that go to school with no food and that means they can't focus and then they don't get their work done and then their education is affected and then their life is affected? And do we think about even that little scope of of the broader scope of my street but but my community? And do do the kids have a safe place to play? And then we can go to our vocation and ask the question, like, what about our work? Am I doing my work with excellence and with passion and with energy because I'm contributing to the common good, maybe to the common good in my workplace, maybe to the common good of what this business plays a little part in? Maybe when I create business, if you're a person who creates business, are you lifting people up with that business? Are you, are you, are you acknowledging the fact that, that what you're doing has a direct role or at least an indirect role to the livelihood of other people? And, and that's the common good. Do I pay my employees well? If you're a creator and you create art, does your art demonstrate that beauty matters and, and, and shalom is, 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 is a beautiful vision? And is God glorified through that? Is God glorified through your work? Do people understand that in, in your workplace? Because your industry and, and your workplace is also an opportunity for the common good. And, you're, and, and our city. Sometimes we, when we think about it, like our school tax or how we shop locally or all this stuff. And, now, and I, I know you're looking back at me and saying, like, Dave, this sounds really social. <laughs> Maybe this sounds really like, this sounds like we're just trying to like Fix every problem, and that's not really the case. But the the case is, if God says, um, "Seek the welfare of your city," then we cannot then, as believers, just live in this little bubble and say, "I'm going to make sure it's good for me," (laughs) and good for the few of us here, and let let the city rot. We that's not what God's saying. Saying, "Seek the welfare of the city." I love this Christian philosopher said this. His name is Jacques Maritain. He said, bread for myself is a material question. Bread for my neighbor is a spiritual question. So when we started this tax clinic at our church a few years ago, and um, I remember Oscar was involved in helping to start that, and and others have moved that forward now, and and, uh, it's been an amazing initiative for three, four years and some people ask, well, what, is it, what happens? What do you accomplish? And when we started to look behind the scenes, we realized that some people, the first step to getting rooted in a culture, in a city, in a society, was just getting their taxes done. Just the first step. There's so many other issues involved, but if they didn't, if they didn't cross that little hill of getting their taxes done, even at making twenty or $21,000 a year, according to under the poverty line in our, in our nation, then they, they might never get to step two, three, and four. And so as a church, we said, well, we should care about that. We should care about this common good issue that people that have not been able to get their taxes done, we would help them move over this accomplishment so they could move forward. That's social and spiritual, I believe. That's a huge step for some people. That's just one example. But here's where this lands for us. And let me kind of end this way. What happens when we do this? I think a few things happen. One thing is this, it forces us to ask what's our motivation? Why would we do this? Why do we do this? Why would I contribute to the common good of my street or my borough, my city, my, my province? Why do we do some of these things? Why as a church do we rally around something like this or our partnership with Springdale or West Island Mission. And it forces us to own up to our motivation. Because here's the thing. Sometimes our motivation is, I'm doing this for me. Because I want to feel good. So the motivation is a me motivation. And, and when we start contributing to the common good, it forces us to actually... And the Spirit of God works in us because the Spirit of God does not want to lead us towards just a motivation of it's about me. No. Sometimes, check this, this is interesting. Sometimes the motivation is actually... To make the gospel look good but you know what the gospel doesn't the gospel doesn't need you or me to look good the gospel is good and as the gospel works in us and we live it out the gospel's good but we don't have to create a specific ad campaign for the gospel to be good you know what i'm saying and so i remember talking to this one church that was looking at a an area where they wanted to move into and the city was giving them some problems and one or two of the people told me they said we're going to make sure we're going to go around and we're going to do really good things So then the city will know that we're good and then they'll do this for us. And I thought, maybe you should just, you could do that, but don't do it for that reason. (laughs) Just do it. Because the Lord tells you, seek the welfare of the city. And so it forces us to check our motivation. Is my motivation for serving my neighbor only to get the gospel into them? And... I want the gospel to be on my street. I want my neighbors to come to know Jesus. I want my neighbors to be drawn to God and to, and to come to a relationship with him. I want my city. Oh, my goodness. I would love every kid and family at Springdale to come to know Jesus. That would be the, like my utmost joy in some of the things where we serve in our community. But if we only do those things just for that reason, then, then we're creating a system where we're going we're gonna to feel trapped in Because how many times do I have to mow my neighbor's lawn to make him think that the gospel's good? How many times? Is it 19? Is it 28? Is it it until I live there, until I'm 60? And then if, if it doesn't happen, have I failed? And so to check our motives, and the motive, as we see in Jeremiah, is seek the welfare of the city. Because that's what the Lord wants. Here's, here's another short part. When we do this, so first it, it, it helps us clarify our, our, our motivation. But secondly, it, it puts us on common ground with people. Because when we do this, then what's happening is we're loving people regardless of what they believe. We're, we're learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a follower of the one we believe is the one true God in a community, in a neighborhood where many people don't believe that. And we recognize that. We, we can't force people to believe that. But when we serve the common good, it puts us on common ground with other people. And it creates opportunities for relationships. And it creates opportunities for, for, us, for conversation and a common ground. And it teaches us to love people regardless of what they believe or when or if they ever respond to the gospel. And so it puts us on common ground. And here's the last thing I think it does. And it, it, it helps us communicate our conviction. So some of you are thinking, well, do I ever, does, does doing the common good ever give me a chance to share Jesus with people? And I say, of course it does. But, but not, not in the way where we're doing it just to, sh- to share Jesus. But in this way, we can tell people when they say, why are you doing this? And we don't just have to say, well, you know, we just, we just love these kids. And of course, I mean, a lot of people love those kids. But what we could say is, we've caught this vision of what a city could be like and we've caught it from the kingdom vision of Jesus and it's rooted in the story of the scriptures of what kind of city God envisions and when we caught that vision we're we're just just saying we're going to participate in what that means and then all of a sudden what happens is people can understand oh wow God actually wants this for my school the the vision of Christianity is for my neighborhood to look like this. They might not agree with everything, but you have this opportunity to communicate your convictions. And now you're saying, it's not me. What the gospel has done in me and the vision the gospel has given me, I'm now just partnering with it. God's been doing this for so long. I'm, I just, I'm just joining in. And so we get to communicate that the gospel is about equality, and the gospel is about justice, and the gospel is about peace, and it is about safe, safe streets and health and beauty and education and prosperity. And I don't mean the extensive prosperity, and we're not going to get into that debate, but the sense of how it's about that stuff, that's, that's God's vision for what a city could look like. And so when we contribute to the common good, I think it clarifies our motivation puts us on common ground with people, and it gives us a way to communicate our conviction. So we're going to close this way. and like I, I wish I had like seven steps for you to do uh, or the next three things. And, but we can, we can start small. We can invite the Lord to shape our hearts. Again, we can just every morning say, Lord, if I were to pray this prayer, well, you're asking me to seek the, the welfare of my city and to pray for it. Well, just ask, what can I do today to seek the welfare of my city? How's the gospel shaping me towards that? Lord, just start praying for your street. Start praying for your neighborhood. That's, that's a simple way to start. God says pray. Pray for the city. Have you prayed for Montreal this week? Have you prayed for your borough? Have you prayed for some of the issues that are, that are happening in our city? Just begin by doing that. Um. We're going we're gonna to close and pray together in a moment, but I think of the beautiful example we had with specific, specifically with our tax clinic when we tried to serve the common good in this way. What happened was this. We, had, we realized we were serving people by doing their taxes, but then we had this group of people that were serving with us. So the Canadian Revenue Agency sent qualified people to help us do taxes, and we partnered with a local youth center and so our team to do people's taxes was mixed with believers and unbelievers and atheists and Muslims and Christians. But Westside hosted it. And when we got back together two weeks later and said, hey, join us for a supper. We want to just thank you for this time. All of a sudden, we still were able to say, we're doing this for the common good. But when the questions came back and said, why? We said, God, God has shaped our hearts so much. We, 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 want, we want to see good things in our city. And, and it's, it gave us an opportunity to be on common ground with people. So we were sitting there with a wonderful Muslim man uh, that's a teacher at Vanier College, and he was sharing his life and his heart, but he was seeing the beautiful vision of Jesus. And, and just, but we were pursuing the common good. And that gave us this amazing opportunity. And I think that's one example, but that can happen in so many different ways. We just follow what Jeremiah we read in Jeremiah, seek the welfare of our city and pray for it. And here's the beautiful, beautiful thing that ends off and says, when it prospers, you too will prosper. When there's good in the soil you're nurturing, it's a better soil for everybody, isn't it? Um, let's stand as we pray. And I'm going to ask you to pray for a specific event today that's going on, on on October 9th. We're, we're doing something. We've never, we've never done this before. This is um, a new live stream event that's coming from New York. Uh, Tim Keller's a part of it, and it's an organization called Q that tries to spur discussion and dialogue, but also pursues the common good and helps believers and churches think through this way. And they're doing this live event from New York, and it's happening October 9th. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool to mix up the crowd and, and have an event where we invite the people we're partnering with in our community to come and dialogue what, the, what common good means for them and to hear, hear their story, hear their heart. And so on October 9th, if people say yes, we potentially have the mayor of two West Island boroughs, some uh, leaders of, of certain nonprofit organizations and businesses, and a mix of Christians and believers and some from, from West Side in the same room listening to what it means to pursue the common good. And so I don't know what's going to come up out of the conversation, but I know that we're going to get a chance to see God at work in a way that we, we, we might not get in a setting like this. So I'm just going to ask you, obviously not everybody can come because it's only limited to 20 or 25 people, and we want to make sure it's a mixed group. But could you pray for that? Could you pray for that and say, Lord, what would you have, you know, what would you have for us as a church in this? What would you have for us to learn from this? How can the gospel be on display through this? Um, so let's, let's pray together. Bless your name, Jesus. Thank you, God. Uh, if Matt and Ardoza's here, if you could just come up as we close. Bless your name, Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. Let me just begin to ask the Lord um, what this means for your week this week. Where he's planted you in the city your neighborhood or network, your workplace. Bless your name, Jesus. Bless your name, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Hallelujah. Bless your name, Jesus. Just before we pray, we're going to It's just the words from the last song we sang that said, there is no one like you, God. And I just want to sing this out because I hope that it reminds us that our worship is upwards and outwards. That um, this call directly from God to the Jews to seek the welfare of the city is also part of our worship. And to see that this vision of of wholeness and well-being God's vision comes from his heart and so we sing there is no one like you God because this is God's heart this is his kingdom dream